Good morning, First Baptist. Let's stand together. Eventually, we're going to sing the words, Great Are You, Lord. Let's anticipate that great time where we get to praise the Lord. You give life. You are love. You bring light to the darkness. You give hope. You restore every heart that is broken. Here we say it. Great are you, Lord, it's your breath in our lungs, so we pour out our praise, we pour out our praise, it's your breath in our lungs, so we pour out our praise to you only. to bring forth praise of God. Amen. Let's join all of creation. All the earth will shout your praise. Our hearts will cry. These bones will sing.
Pastor. Let's pray together. Great God and Father, we bow before the only God who can bring life out of death. Lord, uh, we stand here today because of a spiritual resurrection. We were dead in trespasses and sins, but you made us alive together with Christ. For by grace, we have been saved. Lord, we give you praise for it. That's why we sing. That's why we lift our voices. You are our God, our creator. Lord, we exalt your name. We have been invited before you as an audience to worship the King of kings and Lord of lords. And we, Lord, ask that you would accomplish your will today in the hearts of your people. And may we give you praise and honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to remind you that Today is what we call Cooperative Program Day, and simply that means that SBC folk that are members of SBC churches need to think more about the cooperative program, meaning that we have thousands of churches across the U.S., North America, all over the world for that matter, that cooperate together uh, to give toward missions. So we allocate 10% of our budget spread out to give to the cooperative program for that endeavor. You can see some of those numbers. When we uh, have a budget of whatever amount of dollars that is, we allocate 10%, and once we give it, like 73 goes to World Missions, 22% theological education, that meaning your six SBC seminaries and your colleges in the state of Missouri and other states, and then uh, you see the other breakdown. And, And the point is, uh, when you give your tithes and offerings, that goes to support these kind of endeavors, which we need to be reminded of. So how can you be faithful to do that? Well, just make sure you're faithful to give uh, to the general budget in your tithes and offerings. And I know we designate way more money as a church to missions than just a cooperative program, and I am thankful for that. Amen. God is good. All right. Just a reminder to be faithful in that area. Let's sing to the Lord. Well, not yet. <laughs> We need to fill out this uh, connection card, the all-important connection card. And it really is important because uh, if you're with us for the first or second time, we would love to know who you are so that we can minister to you, reach out to you. If you have any questions about the church, be sure and check that on the back, and we'll get uh, that information to you, okay? And for the rest of us, please uh, fill that out. If you have a prayer request, be sure and make that known. And this is also a great way to tell us if you maybe you've changed addresses or phone numbers and you need uh, information in the church system to be updated. So please fill that out and let us know and we'll update that, okay? God bless you for being faithful to do that. Well, let's do sing. And we are going to to sing about uh, today's today's message, really. Uh, I think everything we have today is, is really points toward what Brother Philip is going to be sharing with us. And this is Living Hope. How great the chasm that lay between us How high the mountain I could not climb. In desperation I turned to heaven and spoke your name into the
invite you to learn this new hymn with us today. All I have is Christ. By the way, if that's all you have, that's all you need. Amen. I once was lost in darkest night, yet thought I knew the way, the sin that promised joy and light had led me to.
may be seated. I'd like to tell you the story of a young man that um, found that all he had was Christ. He had a terrible, terrible set of circumstances in his life. William Cooper, born in London and lived during the time of the Great Awakening. George Whitfield, Jonathan Edwards, John Wesley, and most influential in his life was John Newton, the writer of Amazing Grace. Cooper's life was riddled with severe depression, and after graduating from college, his father coerced him into practicing law. On the eve of a public examination for the position of clerk in the House of Lords, Cooper suffered yet another bout with depression and decided that ending his miserable life was the only solution. He attempted suicide several times though various, through various methods. Each attempt, inexplicably, or so it would seem, failed. A narrator described his experience the next day. He felt for himself a contempt not to be expressed or imagined. Whenever he went into the street, it seemed as if every eye flashed upon him with indignation and scorn. He felt as if he had offended God so deeply that his guilt could never be forgiven. And his whole heart was filled with tumultuous pangs of despair. Madness was not far off. Rather, madness was already come. Cooper then was admitted to a mental asylum by his father, where the presiding doctor was a Christian and presented the gospel to Cooper and often prayed with him. One day, upon hearing the scriptures, God opened Cooper's eyes to the beauty of the grace and offered him, that offered him the gospel. Here is what Cooper wrote in his journal about the experience. Immediately I received the strength to believe, and the full beams of the Son of Righteousness shone upon me. I saw the sufficiency of the atonement He had made, my pardon sealed in His blood, and all the fullness and completeness of His justification. In a moment I believed and received the gospel, my eyes filled with tears, and my voice choked with transport. I could only look up to the heavens in silent fear, overwhelmed with love and wonder." At this point in a Christian story, we assume that all is roses and sunshine, right? Well, no, life still has its struggles for both the lost and the redeemed. Twice more after leaving the asylum, Cooper had a remarkably low point in his life, his battle with depression, and twice more attempted suicide, both, praise the Lord, being unsuccessful. After leaving the asylum, however, Cooper did begin attending church where John Newton pastored and that was a constant source of hope in Cooper's life. This was deeply helpful in the health of Cooper's soul, though he still wrestled with depression till the day he died. Newton asked Cooper to assist him in compiling a hymnal. One hymn that Cooper wrote for that collection was, There is a fountain filled with blood. As we sing this great text, I hope you see clearly, as Cooper did, that no one, even those facing the darkest of circumstances, is outside the saving reach of God's grace. Oh, oh, oh. 
and sing No Power of Hell. No power of hell, no scheme of man can have a clock me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ I'll My little home church was called Bowman Baptist Church. We usually talk about where Natalie and I are from by referring to Elbert County or Elberton, Georgia because Bowman is barely on the map. It's a little bitty spot. About 800 people grew up in my community. But our little SBC church was blessed to have over the years, especially from the time I was probably five to the time that... God took Natalie and I off to seminary and school and called us to, called to the ministry. We were blessed to have wonderful preachers brought in to, to preach the word expositionally, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, which uh, truly taught us the word of God. But we also were blessed to have singing groups that came along with the preaching. You don't have that as much anymore. Back in the day, we might call it protracted meetings. You just kept on going. You know, you traditionally start on Sunday morning, end on Wednesday night. Sometimes click on the Thursday night, Friday night, because the Lord was speaking through his word. But there was a particular family that would sing the gospel music for us often. They were called the Balt Ziegler family. And I remember as a 10-year-old, shortly after I had trusted Christ, that God brought a pastor to our church who knew the Balt Ziegler family and they came to sing. And there was a song called, I've Been Changed. And that song has always been a part of my life and my thoughts. And it was written by Moises Lister. And this guy wrote a lot of songs. It was recorded in 2005 by Legacy 5 and then again in 2008 by the Booth Brothers, which some of you are familiar with. 
but it was written years and years ago. But the Baltzligers would sing that song. And it resonated in my heart because I knew what God had done for me. It starts off, well, I've been to the river. I've been baptized. I've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. I've been changed from the creature that I once was and redeemed is now my name. I've been changed. I'm newborn now. My life has been rearranged. What a difference it made when the Lord came and stayed. Oh, yes, I've been changed. You know... I thought and reflected on that song often in my childhood and up to my adult years. And you know what? That's what salvation is. It's radical. It's a change. You've been taken from the creature that you once were. And redeemed is now your name. It's, it's that radical. It's radical. The new birth is. And that's our subject for today. And I'm happy. I'm happy to talk about new life in Christ. So we've studied our dreadful condition. Chapter 2, 1 through 3. It's the dreadful condition of man. Helpless, rebellious, condemned under the wrath of God. And we've witnessed from the scriptures beginning in verse 4 that God took the initiative. What kind of character does God have? Rich in mercy. Great in love. And so we've learned so much about that rich mercy and great love that compelled God to do something in us. In other words, God acts based upon who he is. He's rich in mercy. He's great in love. Therefore, he has a desire to save sinners. The something in us that he has accomplished is called the miracle of the new birth. The technical term is called the doctrine of regeneration. God has made us alive in Christ. Now, if you're like me, you marvel at childbirth. Isn't it an amazing thing? I've gone through it four times. With my kids. Watching. As my wife did it. Right? It's rough on us men. What's wrong with y'all? But the thing is, it's a miracle to watch. It's a miracle to watch your spouse, your wife, push out that little offspring. Miracle of birth. And it's fascinating, it's marvelous, it's miraculous. It's a miracle, because God does it. But folks, I want to remind you that there's a greater miracle. And this when God takes a dead sinner and makes him or her alive. It's a greater miracle. And it's given to us in the word of God. God makes us alive. Now remember our outline, God made us alive in Christ. And we thought, wow, we're going to do this in one week. No, that hasn't happened. But we've moved from the character of God, mercy, rich in mercy, great love. And now we get to look at what he's done, right? Made us alive, raised us up with Christ, enthroned us in heaven, and predestined us unto good works. We're going to see those eventually. But today, the subpoint under God made us alive with Christ is just to add that simple phrase, and God made us alive by grace. And Paul is going to present to us the doctrine of regeneration. Here it is. Chapter 2, verse 4. But God, wonderful, two one-syllable words. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace, you have been saved. Now, as Paul begins to present the doctrine of the new birth, being made alive, 
regeneration, he does something that he's already stated. Don't you find it interesting that the one phrase he reaches back in chapter 2, 1 through 3, and pulls back into verse 5 is this one. And you were dead in trespasses and sins. In other words, he wants you to reflect upon that. In order for you to understand the magnitude of being made alive, you need to think about your condition one more time. You were necros, dead. You were dead spiritually in trespasses and sins. So he paints the, paints the picture. One time again, he pulls out that black piece of velvet that the diamond of the gospel is sitting on. And one more time, he wants you to see the backdrop. But he wants you to reflect upon how glorious the diamond of the gospel really is. You won't ever treasure it like you should until you understand the backdrop of where you came from. You were dead in trespasses and sin. So he's going to tell us. He goes back to that one thing in the dreadful picture of mankind. What's your condition? Dead. Folks, I want to remind you that the fall created more in us than just disorderly conduct. It created more in us than just bruising us. The fall mortally wounded us. Spurgeon said it like this. We were not hurt or wounded. We were slain outright and left for dead. That is our condition. So in view of God's rich mercy and great love, what God does for us in Christ, he does for dead people. Y'all get this straight. Salvation is about God resurrecting dead people. What he does for us, he does for dead people. So you need nothing less. What's needed if you're dead? Well, you need nothing less than life from the dead. And I've said this multiple times already, but please hear me again. In order for you and I to appreciate the doctrine of salvation or being raised or understanding our salvation, in order for you to see the glory of grace, you've got to understand your dreadful condition at the time. Unless I need to tell you one more time. At the time God made you alive, you were dead. Shall I say it one more time? At the time God made you alive, you were dead. Paul reiterates it. Why? Because it's, in, it's important. That's your condition. What's needed? We need life from the dead. Charles Hodge once said, God interfered for our recovery. I mean, that's shouting for me right there now. That's good stuff. That's solid biblical theology. God interfered for our recovery. Now, there's a lot of people out there in the world that have what I called evangel... How how can I say this? Evangelifish theology. They say they're evangelical and they believe the Bible, but when you press them on things, they really don't know their Bible and they give an anemic and a weak gospel that is not found anywhere in the Bible. Have you ever heard this one? God is a gentleman. And he always patiently knocks at our heart's door. Really. Now, you know, most people get that out of context, out of Revelation 3, when it says the Lord stands at the door and knocks. And if any man hears my voice, he will come in. Has not one thing to do with salvation. He's giving that to the seven churches in Asia Minor. He's not giving that to lost sinners. So, in reality, you're in the house on the floor and you're dead. That is the reality given to us. So we would see that God is outside tenderly knocking, right? Well, our condition, folks, demands more than a gentleman God who knocks at the door until dead corpses say come in. This will never happen. Just think about this logically. We have a God who comes to the door 
And he's just patiently knocking. He's waiting for us to answer. Have you ever gone to someone's house or just in your mind? Just think, how long would you have to knock before somebody on their own wakes up from the dead? It's not going to happen. In reality, the Bible teaches that we have a God who interferes into our death. He actually comes up. Instead of knocking, he kicks down the door. And he comes in and he resurrects dead sinners. And he breathes life into them. God bursts through. All the, protocol, all the protocols of nice knocking is over. It's over when God invades the heart. This is what you need. You need life from death. And this is the glory of our salvation. God awakens dead sinners. Don't you realize that God interferes? If you think God is just knocking away at your heart's door waiting for you to respond, you don't realize your condition. Before Christ, you are dead. God interferes. Why? Because he's rich in mercy. Hallelujah. He interferes because he has great love. In our condition, we need a God who blessedly interferes. And he loved us enough to interfere into your putrid state. You were dead in trespasses and sins. This is the glory of the gospel. Now, have you ever stopped to consider that the reason our churches are so weak and anemic today is because perhaps our gospel is so weak and anemic? Ladies and gentlemen, the gospel of Jesus Christ is a message of resurrection from the dead. There's nothing anemic about that. There's nothing weak about that. Philippians 1 would remind us that the gospel, uh, Romans 1 would remind you that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Nothing weak and anemic about the power of God. So this is the true gospel that we see that changes lives and transforms them. A fledgling gospel of self-help will never save anyone. You can write all the books you want to write on self-help, but they're not going to save sinners. The only thing that can save a dead sinner is a living Christ. He's the only one that can make us alive. This is the gospel that we preach. This is the gospel that transforms lives. So the text says... He made us alive together with Christ. Birthed us, made us alive. This is union with Christ language. In other words, there's no life apart from union with Christ. How did God make you alive? He made you alive, note this, together with Christ. What an amazing statement. Okay, flip back one page. That's what it is in my Bible. And if you need a page number... It is page 1093. Flip back one page. Chapter 1, verse 20. Here's the connection. Ephesians 1, verse 20. He, he made you alive together with Christ. Well, what does that mean? Verse 20. That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So here is a, a reminder that your spiritual resurrection when God made you alive is on the basis of God raising Jesus Christ from the dead. We've been raised together with Christ. Paul will give a similar understanding of this, very much so, in Romans chapter 6. If you're fast, turn there. Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. Raised together with Christ. Listen to Romans 6, 3 through 4. Natalie and I memorized the entire chapter when we were in the youth group. Back at Bowman Baptist Church. And I could probably still rattle off the first seven verses, but I struggle after that. But listen. Verse 3. 
Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were also baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him. Isn't that strange language? By baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Do you all see the connection? 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 3, we've been begotten again by the mercy of God that calls us to be born again from above into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's bringing together our spiritual resurrection together with the resurrection of Christ from the dead. In other words, it's according to God's great mercy and love that he rebirthed us to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. A little later you're going to see that you've been raised together with Christ. That's because of his resurrection, raised. You've been seated together, enthroned with him in the heavenly places. So, do you see how important this intersection of Ephesians 2.5 really is? But God, who was rich in mercy and had great love toward us, made us alive. God is the subject of chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Main verb was not given until we get to verse 4. Made us alive. Alive in Christ. So, historically, what do we know about Christ? Was he historically, literally crucified? You better say amen. Was he, did he really literally die? Absolutely. He was literally and physically placed in a tomb. And three days later, he was literally and physically raised up bodily from the dead. That's called salvation history. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 3, right? These are historical facts. These things happen on real days. But here's the glory of your salvation. In salvation history, in a way which goes beyond any human explanation, when Jesus Christ died on Calvary, you died with him. When, you, when he was placed in the tomb, you were buried with him. Does not that go beyond anything you could ever explain with your mind? You were buried with Christ into baptism. You were raised up together with him in salvation history. Tony Marita says this. In some astonishing way, when Jesus Christ got out of that tomb 2,000 years ago, Tony Marita got out with him. I got better news. Philip Burden got out with him. And so did you if you're saved. The question we have to ask is if you got out of the tomb with him 2,000 years ago, is there any hallelujah chance in, in the world that you won't get out of him in time and space from the tomb? The answer to that question is you better believe you're going to get out of that dead tomb because God is going to resurrect a dead heart and he's going to make you alive. So in Colossians chapter 3 verse 1, Paul says this has already taken place. You were also, past tense, raised with Christ. So because of that union with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, what happens in time and space? Well, your personal, subjective, and experiential salvation history, we ourselves experience resurrection from the dead in the new birth. God takes you from a place of deadness and spiritually resurrects a dead heart. That's what happens in salvation. What has happened in redemptive history in the past objectively becomes our experience in time space when we trust Christ as Lord or when we, he makes us alive and we put our trust in him and we are raised from the dead. This is what we simply call regeneration. Don't get wigged out. That's a biblical word. 
It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy that he saved us. By the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit of God. Lest you haven't checked, this word is also in the Baptist faith and message of which you are if you're a member of this church. You're a Southern Baptist. And it is in our doctrinal statements. It is the word regeneration. Jimmy Carter said, I'm a born-again Christian. Y'all remember that? What's that mean? Well, that is the word, ganao, or the word that we transliterate, regeneration. Take something that was dead and make it alive. But that's really what it is. Remember Nicodemus, what must I do to have eternal life? Jesus said, you must be born from above, right? You must be born from above. No one can see the kingdom of God. Ooh, that's interesting. Unless you're born from above. That's regeneration. Now, again, I can't overemphasize the importance of the doctrine of regeneration. Did y'all know that Christianity is not becoming a nicer person? Christianity is not just a glitch or a change in your religious routine. That's not what it is to be made alive in Christ. I want to remind you that salvation is becoming alive in Christ. You are made alive in Jesus Christ. And I want to remind you that there's no one beyond the reach of God's regenerating grace. And there's no one beyond the need for God's regenerating grace. Why? Because without Christ we are dead. Now, there are some different views of regeneration that exist in this world that we live in. Some of them are horrible. Others are not so good. One I will tell you that's pretty horrible is this one. Somehow, when the waters of baptism are applied to an infant, the infant's original sin in Adam is taken away and the new life of God is implanted into the infant. The infant at that point becomes regenerate. That's called baptismal regeneration. Now, there are a lot of variations to this. There's a lot of traditions that go with it. But in short, water is seen as grace imparted and new life springs forth. That is the Roman Catholic view. And the words they say is the words, by virtue of the thing performed. Ex opere operato. I call that hogwash. The Hebrew word for it is called baloney. You ever heard that one? Right? There's no possible way that a dead sinner can be made alive by water. Not taught in the scripture whatsoever. And people that are even Church of Christ believe that Water baptism is meritorious for salvation. I asked one of those individuals one day, based upon Peter's teaching that Noah was saved through baptismal waters, or Noah was saved by baptism, I asked that individual, how much water actually touched Noah? The point is, he was saved through the ark of Christ, and he didn't touch the water. Hello! Jesus Christ alone is the ark of our salvation. So... There's no amount of water in the world sprinkled, dumped, or drowned that could ever give you new life. You could be baptized every single Sunday of the next coming 20 years at Table Rock Lake. And you may come to know every fish by name. But it will not make you alive. It will not do it. If someone has told you that to become a Christian means to be baptized, they lied. That's not what the Word of God teaches This view says that infants are imparted life from water. And there are variations of that. 
when we talk about baptismal regeneration. That will be anybody that believes that baptismal waters actually save you. You need to be really careful when you're talking to kids about this. Because they look up here and they see water and they say, oh, that washes my sins away. Nope. It shows a picture of the fact that your sins have been washed away prior to getting in that pool. But it wasn't by that water. Right? So we need to be real careful what we teach our children and make absolutely sure they understand. There is another view of regeneration that has to do with the fact of this. Regeneration has to be experienced by someone who can experience it. In this view, the sinner is in bad shape. He hears the gospel and he realizes, yes, this is for me. So therefore, by an exercise of his own faith, he brings about the new birth. This view is called decisional regeneration. The new birth comes to me as a basis, on the basis of my decision. Now, I assume that many of you have been taught this at one point or another in your Christian life. In other words, the new birth is the result of our faith, of our decision, of our repentance, or however you want to put that, whatever your part was. I want to ask you a question. Who is the instrument of the new birth? No one comes to the Father unless the... Who's the agent of the new birth? It's the Holy Spirit of God. It's Christ alone that saves, but you understand the Holy Spirit's God as well. And the Bible teaches that He is, in fact, the agent of the new birth. Who is in the driver's seat when a sinner gets saved? You are God. You're in trouble if you're in the driver's seat. Because last time I checked in this text, you're dead. How can a dead person be in the driver's seat? Well, that's something for us to reflect upon. You know, the Bible's a lot of fun, amen? Something for us to think about. God, what, God we think, may well be the agent, or the Spirit of God may be the agent, but it is the sinner, by the act of his will, that brings about the new birth. You'd be surprised how many people believe this. Well, my friends, there's some derivatives of that that I can swallow, but the Bible does not teach you're in the driver's seat. It does not teach that your decision from your will saves you. What the text says, it is God alone that makes you alive. That's what the text says. There is, there is of course, another one that is called sovereign regeneration. And this is when God Almighty, out of the act of His own free and sovereign grace, exerts the very power that raised Jesus from the dead. And He comes to the sinner who is dead in trespasses and sin, and He imparts life sovereignly and freely. Now logically, in your condition as being one who is dead, what's make, what makes the most sense? That water can make you alive? That your decision is actually what saved you? Or as a dead person, God had to make you alive? What makes more logical sense? Well... I'm not going to split hairs over it. I'm not going to fall out with you. But it is new birth by God's sovereign act of free grace that this text teaches. You were dead. God made you alive. No matter where you land, you need to be honest and admit that regeneration is the work of God. You were dead. God made you alive. No matter how you see the semantics... Did you believe simultaneously with God making you alive? Did you believe after God made you alive? Did you believe and then God made you alive? You wrestle with that. You have a Bible too. I'm just telling you what this text says. Well, 
Let me show you a couple of texts that you have to focus upon in order to have good... Well, the word is called soteriology. Soterios means to rescue from danger. It's the word save. So, in other words, you all have a view of how you were saved. That's called soteriology. So what is your soteriological view of how God actually saved you? Not based on your experience, but what the Bible says. Right? So John 1, verse 12. Y'all not going to turn there? Y'all trust your pastor enough to read it? You know, the Bible's not a picture book. It's a word book. Right? Chapter 1, verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Wow. Can we make an appeal to sinners to trust Christ? You better believe it. When you trust Christ, he gives you the power and right to become children of God. So I tell you this morning, receive him and believe in his name and you will be saved. That's our responsibility. But let's not forget verse 13. Who were born. Are y'all looking? Not of blood. Nor of the will of man. But of God. Folks, how were you born? Not based on your decision. Not based on any part that you did to get saved. God birthed you into his family. Not by the will of your flesh. Not by the will of man. But God made you alive. John 3, verse 6. <clears throat> Same book. Flip over. John 3, 6. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Who did I tell you was the agent of new birth? There he is, the spirit of God. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Did y'all know that the Greek word for wind and spirit is the same? So there's a, there's a play on words. This is what John is trying to get us to see when it comes not by the will of the flesh, not by the will of man, but it's the Spirit of God. So John 3, 8 teaches us that it is the sovereignty of God's spirit. Why? You don't know where he's coming from. You don't know where he's going. But he has a prerogative and you're not him. And his prerogative is that when he does show up, something's going to change. You don't see the wind. You can't control the wind. It's not your prerogative to control the spirit of God. But let me remind you, friend, that when the spirit of God births somebody, you can see the result. It's clear that the Spirit of God has actually showed up. So I hope you see that it's the Spirit of God that's working. But how are we brought forth into life? The Spirit agency is working. Glad you asked. James, flip over to James chapter 1. And let me show you an interesting text of Scripture that is absolutely incredible for our understanding today. I'm trying to find it. Hebrews, James, yes. James chapter 1, verse 18. I hope you're tracking with me. Listen to this verse. James 1, 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. That we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. How are we brought forth? Is it by the exercise of our will? It's the exercise of his will. And he reminds us that we're brought forth. And he now weds together 
the agency of the Spirit and the instrumentality of the Word of God. Faith cometh by. Amen. You're getting it. And hearing by the Word of God. So, how does that work? Well, Paul says, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. To keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. If you skip on down to verse 6, here's what it says. Satan has blinded the eyes. Got that? Verse 6. For God who said let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So here's the reality. We were lying in darkness. The darkness of our own sin. And God himself turned on the light and it's called the new birth. You understand that when Paul is giving these words, he's talking about creation. That the spirit of God as the agent of creation hovered over the waters. And there was no land, no life, nothing. But God Almighty spoke life out of darkness into light. The same way you're dead in your trespasses and sin. And the spirit of God hovers over a dead person and brings life. To that individual to see the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Mm. Praise God. So regeneration is the sovereign work of God. Now I want to remind you of something. It's a radical work. When we use the term radical today, we use it loosely, don't we? I mean, we got, we got radical everything. Radical men's ministry. Radical women's ministry. Radical toenails. Radical this. Radical that. In reality... Radical means a pervasive and down to the very core kind of change in our being. Oh, wait a minute now. Would you say that regeneration is radical? I say it's pretty radical. God takes out a heart of stone and puts in a heart of flesh. I say that's pretty radical, wouldn't you? He takes out a dead heart that is unresponsive. You ever seen a rock respond? Some of you had a pet rock. Does that thing do what you tell it to do? No, it doesn't. It can't respond. God puts in a living, pulsating heart. He also puts within us a spirit, his Holy Spirit, that gives you a desire to walk in his ways, in his precepts and his laws. Folks, I don't know what y'all think about that, but I call that radical. Here's the New Testament perspective. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and all the new has come. The new birth is so radical that it's the difference between an old creation and a new creation. God does something profound in us when he takes you from a place of being dead and makes you alive. In other words, this regeneration comes before and is the cause of your belief and faith. This is what the Bible teaches. Listen again to the contrast. Verse 5 says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. I want to ask you a question. What can possibly fit in between the moment of death and life? Are y'all tracking with me or y'all snoozing? Don't zone out. Don't glaze over like a donut, right? What could possibly distinguish between the difference of the state of spiritual death and now the state of spiritual life? What could possibly fit in between the moment that God took you from the place of death and brought you to life? What could? What could possibly be there? I want to tell you, according to the Bible, it's not the exercise of your free will. We've made that clear from what the Word of God says. A dead person cannot exercise their will. It is only the sovereign, free grace of God that takes you from the place of being dead and making you alive. And what happens when the new life comes? We believe! 
He turns on the light. We repent. We have faith. We cry out. Did y'all hear William Cooper? Who gave him the strength to believe? He had good theology, didn't he? It was God Almighty that did that. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. Do you say, oh good, the baby has come to life because it's crying? Or do you say the cry is a sign of life? Last time I checked, when God makes a baby alive, he does so, in, he does so through conception. That baby's alive way before it comes out of that womb. Right? The cry is not the sign of life. I mean, the cry is not, oh, the baby is now alive. The cry is a sign of life that the baby is actually alive. When you're born again, the first cry of the newborn baby is a cry of faith to Jesus Christ, God Almighty. This regeneration takes place by the agency of the Holy Spirit of God. Titus 3, 5, and 6. He saved us not by works which we have done in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Aren't you thankful the Holy Spirit of God interferes with our dead state? And as he comes in, just as he hovered over the deep in Genesis 2, 1, or Genesis 1, he does that creative power work to take us from the... Remember, you're connected to the resurrection of Christ. That's how you're saved. You're in union with Christ and he resurrects a dead heart. But there's also an instrument of regeneration. That's the word of God. How does he bring it forth? James 1.18. God brought you forth by his will. How? Through the word. He brings you to life. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word. Peter will remind us that we're not born of physical seed. But with spiritual seed which is the living, abiding word of God. That's how you're born again. The agency of the Spirit, the instrumentality of the Word of God, that's not physical seed, but spiritual seed that makes you alive. That's the Bible. That's what it says. Here's the mystery. How in the world does this all work? I wish I could put salvation under a microscope at the moment you believe. But we can't do this. But here's what we do know clearly from the Word of God. It is a marvelous mystery. And when the Spirit of God and the Word of God come together and they begin to work in a person's life, there's new life that is brought about by the agency of the Spirit of God and the instrumentality of the Word of God so that the eyes of your heart are open, your heart is changed, and new life comes forth. That's what the Bible says. I get it. There's a general call for all to believe the gospel, folks. But there is a clear inner call in the Bible where God actually speaks to a dead heart and makes him or her alive. That's the teaching of the word. You may give you an example. Ezekiel. I want you to preach. And he says, oh, okay, Lord, what's the preaching? All right, you got a valley of dead bones, dead men's bones. Y'all realize that there's not a single bone in that place where they know which one connects to the other. The left bone's connected to the whatever, right? It's not that they're just putrefied and dead but they're also not detached. No sinews, nothing. Simple stench of death. And that's the condition of man outside of Christ. Dead. And Ezekiel is told to preach to those bones. But before that, the Lord says, can these bones live? And Ezekiel wisely says, Lord, only you know. He doesn't presume, but he also knows that God has the power to take something that's dead and make it alive. So what does Ezekiel do? He preaches the word. Here he is with an open Bible, just like I am today, preaching to dead bones. And he opens it up. Just kidding. And he opens it up, and he begins to preach. 
Literally. He, he gives the spoken word of God given directly to him by divine revelation. Speaks it to those dead bones. It's coupled with the agency of the spirit. You remember that text? Breathes life into those dead bones. And all of a sudden there's some rattling. And, and then there's some connecting with sinews. And then they're standing up and they're a great mighty army. Because God can raise the dead. And that's what he does to us. The preached word. You know, sometimes I don't know what to do in this church. But I do know one thing to do. Stand up and preach the word. You may not like it and you don't have to. But I'm not going to answer to you. I'm going to answer to the king who told me to preach the word in season and out of season. And when I'm faithful to preach this book, the Holy Spirit of God is the agent of redemption. And he will save sinners. Amen. Amen. That's right. Okay. You may not understand all this, but don't let it mess up what you do know. And here's exactly what we do know. You can't be made alive without Christ. You were dead in your condition, and God Almighty birthed you and made you alive. Now, final thing to think about. This text says that you were made alive by Christ, but then it all of a sudden turns around and says, By grace you have been saved. Why does it say it like that? We'll, um, we'll unpack it more in verse 8, For by grace you are saved through faith. But it's safe to say, Paul is wanting you to think about something. Your salvation began in the mind of the Father before the foundation of the world. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. You were chosen in him when? Before the foundation of the world. But in time and space, the day you trusted Christ experientially, you were justified. And regenerated and made alive. But does salvation end there? No. The word save here, you were saved by grace, is a, past, is a perfect tense verb. Now, that's important because I was talking to Luke about this. He's the real Greek scholar in here, not me, for sure. He studied it way more than I. But to help you understand the perfect tense, which would be to say this. My, my daughter was here over the week, and she cooked two cakes that will make a tadpole slap a whale. I mean, unbelievable. And I said, don't cook another one until my friends come in because I can't eat it all week. But look, if I say to you, my daughter cooked a cake yesterday, that's past tense. But does it guarantee that that cake is still left for me today? Absolutely not. The perfect tense says, she cooked that cake yesterday and there's still some of that cake left for me to eat today. That's the perfect tense. So it was accomplished in the past, and it carries on with consequences for the future. So when you see the word save or salvation or saved, it's talking about you've been regenerated, you are being saved today through the process of sanctification, and you're going to be saved one day when you're glorified and you see Christ face to face. And Romans chapter 8 reminds us that God has already predestined your glorification. It's a done deal. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. Boy, that ought to give you some confidence if you're saved today that your salvation is forever. So he wants to give you a comprehensive view to tell you that the whole ball of wax is by grace. Now, folks, next Sunday when you come in here, don't come in here with your shoulders slumping and your mouth taped together. Come in here and sing to the glory of God because God took you from a place where you were dead and he made you alive. All right, let me give you a couple of implications. Number one, if you're alive, you ought to love God. No excuses. You ought to love his church. Hello. 
Jesus loved his church and gave himself for it. And I know people say this all the time. Well, I think the failure is discipleship. We just are not discipling our people. Well, the failure might be that you haven't been made alive. Because the real issue is the greatest teacher that has ever lived is the Holy Spirit of God. And don't you tell me that you're alive to God and you have no desire to walk and live for God. If the Holy Spirit is living in you, then I'm telling you, folks, you can't stand it. You have to do God's will. You know, the scripture says that he came into his own and they received him not. Why? Because the light exposed the darkness and they hated the light more. They hated the darkness They hated the light more than the darkness. Why? Because they're in the darkness. But ladies and gentlemen, when you get saved, you love the light. And even though you're a miserable, good-for-nothing sinner, every one of us, you know full well that you're drawn to the light of God because you want it to expose where you are, because you want to change daily. How about dispositions? If you're saved, folks, and you're made alive, your disposition will change. You won't be what you were before. And I'm challenging you folks, if there's been no change in your life, if your perspective is the same, if your dispositions are the same, if your fear of the light of the word of God is the same, then you haven't been saved. There's no way around that. Because when you're saved, you are taken from a place of death and you are made alive by God. So here's what I can tell you this morning. If you're lost, if you're an unrepentant sinner, there's bad news. You're dead in trespass and sin. But ladies and gentlemen, if you're an unrepentant sinner, there's good news. God raises dead sinners to life. God does that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Oh, Lord, the proof's in the pudding. When the Holy Spirit moves, things change. When he works in the heart of a dead sinner, they become alive. And we may not understand all that he does when he works. But we know one thing for sure, Lord God. It's that when the Spirit of God hits a man with the Word of God, he's made alive and things change. God, help us as a church. Help us to love your Word. Lord, we may disagree on soteriology. We may disagree on when we're made alive and when we believe and all those things. I get it. And I'm not upset at anybody for what they believe. As long as it's not baptismal regeneration. We have no mercy for that because that's total heresy. But God, here's what we do know from your text. It's only you that can make us alive. And when you make us alive, our first cry is a cry of faith. Belief in the Lord Jesus Christ who's made us alive. Now, Father, help us to be a worshiping church. Giving you glory. That's what Paul started off by saying. Blessed be the name of the Lord God. Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit who chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Gave us this incredible salvation. Let us praise you for it. Lord, if there's a lost sinner here today, you and you alone can make them alive. God, would you do it? God, move in their heart to believe the gospel and all of a sudden they'll figure out when it's all said and done that you moved first. God, help them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's sing this invitation together. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins And sinners plunged beneath that blood lose all their guilty stains Lose all their guilty stains Lose all
a gospel that took us from death to life, shouldn't we want to tell other people about it? Amen. That's the call. Jesus said, I have other sheep that will enter this fold. Uh. We need to go after them. We need to be obedient. We need to share the gospel and not fear. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Why? It's the power of God and it's salvation to those who believe. If they believe, it's because of the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ that saved them.